Hi there, and welcome to Vineyard Church Delaware County's podcast. My name is Michael Hansen. I'm the lead pastor here at the church, and I am so glad that you have joined us for this week's message. I'm going to have a little bit more to say at the end, but for now, enjoy the teaching. Now, please welcome Andrew Hudson to the stage with this week's message. Thanks, Bill. Hey, everybody, it's good to be with you. Again, welcome to those of you joining us online. It's awesome to be with you as well. Um, So Thanksgiving is this week. Looking forward to it. How many of you guys are looking forward to turkey, mashed potatoes, and cranberries? How many? Anybody? That is my favorite. Cranberries is my favorite. I'm like the only one in our family who eats them. So I get all of them. It's kind of awesome. But uh, no, it's uh, looking forward to that. Uh, And with Thanksgiving, that always means that Christmas is close behind, right? Or coming soon. Uh, So next weekend, we'll actually be kicking um, and starting Advent. It'll be the season of Advent starting next week. So this weekend, I'm going to be concluding and wrapping up our series in Ecclesiastes known as Chasing After the Wind, as we've been calling it. We've been doing this series for a while now. It's been about 12 weeks. It's one of the longer series we've ever done. But I know that God has been doing a really good, deep work in me. I'll speak for myself throughout this series. And I know I've heard that also from many of you guys as well. So um, so I'm excited to kind of wrap it up here uh, this weekend. Um, when I, many of you know this about me, but before I was a pastor, I was a public school teacher. I taught fourth grade science and social studies. Uh, so, and so um, when I got my degree in education, I actually also got a degree in biology. I spent four years at uh, the Ohio State University, which they had a great day today. Um, but I basically sitting in a, on, in a lab and doing experiments and looking in microscopes, and I loved it. I loved it. I love to experiment and to study things and to test things. And so then when I became a teacher and was teaching science to uh, fourth graders, a bunch of nine and 10-year-olds, I wanted to make sure that my classroom, that that was a big part of it, that we weren't just reading things about science, that we were exploring science and testing things and experimenting. Um, and so I, I was trying to figure out, how do I teach my kids how to do this well? How many of you remember learning like the, the scientific method in school. Anybody remember the app? Okay, good. You guys remember? That's good. You remember things. That's awesome. Uh, But I remember, how do I teach this to like nine and 10-year-olds in a way they'll remember? So I came up with this really silly, silly saying to help remember each step. And it was the saying, queens have many purple royal clothes. Queens have many purple royal clothes, which is kind of random, I know, but it's true. Queens typically, queens and kings typically would wear purple. Uh, right? Many purple royal clothes, I guess I should say. And so uh, that was, but that each of those letters stood for one of the steps of the scientific method. So Queens was question. What is the question that we're testing and wanting to try to solve? Have stood for hypothesis. What was the educated prediction that you think you're going to find out about the answer? Um, Many was materials. Uh, P, purple was procedure. What are the steps you're going to do? Royal was results. What are the findings that you come to? And then close was conclusion. And so you might be wondering, what are you talking about, Andrew? How does this have anything to do with Ecclesiastes? Well, one of the things that I love about the teacher uh, in Ecclesiastes, probably because of the teacher in me and the scientist in me, is that all throughout this book, we have basically seen him go through a very logical, almost methodical 
scientific method experimental approach on life. He's had this, we've seen him have this question, this, this question of basically saying, is there anything to this life under the sun, apart from God, that I can find any meaning about or find purpose in? Is there anywhere I can do that? And then we see him tell his hypothesis basically at the very, very beginning, verse one, chapter one and two, we read this. The words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem, meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher, utterly meaningless, everything is meaningless. It's based, this is his hypothesis that life under the sun, apart from God, is meaningless. Other translations say vanity, but we've talked all along that the Hebrew word here is what? Anybody remember? What's the word that we've been talking about? Hevel. I heard somebody say it. Hevel, right? That, that, that life is hevel. And, uh, and the word hevel basically means, we've talked about this, vapor, smoke, or breath. It means vapor, smoke, or breath. His, his hypothesis is that life is hevel. Life is short. It's like a vapor, right? It's here for a bit, and then poof, it's gone. There are no guarantees of tomorrow. You might, get, you might get 60, 70, 80, 90 years, but even that is gonna seem just like a blip in the whole span of eternity. Life is short, life is short. It's also a paradox. We talked about that, that life is a paradox, that you can see the vapor, it's there. You can see the smoke, it's there, but if you reach out and grab it, it slips through your fingers. You have nothing to show for it. You can put on your rollerblades and grab a trash bag if you were here at the beginning, you know what I'm talking about, series. You can put on your rollerblades and grab a trash bag and try to go down the road and catch the wind, right? But at the end, what are you going to have? Skin, knees, and there's nothing in your bag, right? You got nothing, nothing. The wind goes in and goes out. It's gone, right? His hypothesis is that life under the sun, apart from God, will be short and a frustrating, paradoxical life. And, and what were his materials? What were his procedure? Uh, steps that he was following in his experiment. Well, the materials uh, were, the, were to test the things of this world, right? Wealth and influence and achievement and knowledge and these things under the sun that appear at first to hold weight, that appear at, appear at first maybe to provide some security or meaning or purpose. And he methodically all throughout the book of Ecclesiastes tests each one of those things. He goes through these different procedures to step, basically test all those things, and then he comes at the end with his R results, right? Royal results at the very end. And last week, Michael talked about this. Chapter 12, verse 8, this was the last verse that Michael taught on. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher, everything is meaningless. His results matched exactly his hypothesis at the beginning that, that we talked about in chapter 1. Hevel, hevel, it's all just hevel. It's all just chasing after the wind. And so if that's the final results, those were his finding, then what's the only thing left to really talk about? Well, that's the C, the close, the conclusion. The conclusion. What is the conclusion that we should draw about life based on these results? And that's what we're going to focus on today. What is the conclusion of the matter? Chapter 12, verses 9 through 14, the last few verses of this book, and in your Bible, it may even be subtitled The Conclusion 
of the matter. And so if you have a Bible or a phone and want to turn to there, again, chapter 12, starting off in verse 9, it'll also be on the screens, and I'll, uh, you can follow along up there. So it says this, not only was the teacher wise, but he also imparted knowledge to the people. He pondered and searched out and set in order many proverbs. The teacher searched to find just the right words, and what he wrote was upright and true. The words of the wise are like goads. They're collected sayings like firmly embedded nails given by one shepherd. Be warned, my son, of anything in addition to them, of making many books there is no end, and such study, and much study wearies the body. Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the duty of all mankind. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. Right? And that's all, folks. That's it. That's how it ends, right? Uh, that's the end of Ecclesiastes. It's kind of an abrupt stop, like a screeching stop. But what's really interesting, I think, about these last few verses, this section that I just read, that's different from almost the entire rest of the, of the book of Ecclesiastes, is the person who is speaking here. The person who is speaking here is different than the person we've been listening to almost the entire time. We've been talking about how all along the ways in verse one, it says that, the, in verse two, it's, that's the beginning of the words of the teacher, this Solomon-like figure who's gonna share his wisdom with us. But now in this section, this is no longer the teacher. This is somebody different speaking. This is somebody new. And we don't know who this person is, but they're kind of like a narrator or editor of sorts. And it's, it's kind of like uh, how at the beginning and at the end of a movie, you can have a narrator kind of voiceover kind of at the beginning. And then at the end, at the credits, it's kind of what he's doing here. We see this person speaks in chapter one, verse one, just for a bit. And then he speaks again here in verses uh, nine through 14. And, and it's still really important to pay attention to what he has to say uh, because he is bringing the conclusion of all of these results that the teacher has shared with us. And so first, it's in a very summative way. The narrator affirms the, the good wisdom of the teacher throughout the whole book, that this experiment has been conducted well, basically. He says that his words are wise, his words are upright, they're true, that his findings are true. And then it gets weird. <laughs> it gets weird. He starts talking about things like goads and nails. Did you catch that in there? Goads and nails. What is he talking about? Verse 11, the words of the wise are like goads. They're collected sayings like firmly embedded nails given by one shepherd. Goads, in biblical times, a goad, or sometimes called an ox goad, was a stick about eight feet long. It was blunt on the one end and sharp and pointy on the other. If you want to throw that picture up there, we can see here a shepherd using one of these. It was, it was used by shepherds um, to prod stubborn animals into action, to get them moving, or to correct their direction that they're headed when they're off course. And this is really important. A goad, it wasn't meant to injure the animal or cause like permanent pain or damage, but it was rather to make them alert, to wake them up and to get them moving or to jump into action. Uh, my wife makes fun of me all of the time because I am so, so, so jumpy. 
I can be super jumpy. If somebody drops something and it crashes, I like freak out. I like spaz out. What is going on? Or if I, if I sit down in a chair and there's like a, a crumb there or something like that, I'll like jump up and kind of like, what is that? It's just a crumb. And I, it's always like embarrassing when it's never a big deal. But, but, uh, but, it, but I'm awake to it. I'm alert to it. And that's what the narrator is saying, the conclusion that we should draw from all this wisdom all these results of Ecclesiastes, it's meant to awaken us. It's meant to kind of poke us in the took us a little bit. It's meant to prod us and get us moving and, and get us going. And if we're going the wrong direction, it's meant to get us going the right direction, the direction the shepherd is leading. The word goad is actually only found a couple times in the Bible. It's, it's not very common, but one of the few other times that it's mentioned it's said by a very important person, Jesus. Jesus uses this word, the word goad, the very first time he meets the apostle Paul, also known as Saul. And we read in Acts 26, verse 14, Paul or Saul, he's on trial and he's retelling his very first encounter on the road to Damascus where he meets Jesus. And this is what Jesus says to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goats. See, up until this point, Saul, Paul, in his life, he had been trying to imprison Christians and get them executed, thinking that was what God was wanting him to do. And all of a sudden, Jesus miraculously appears to him on this road, supernaturally, knocks him on the ground. He blinds him by the light, like the popular 70s song, right? And, and he says to him this, why, do you, why are you persecuting me and, and why are you kicking against the goats? Why, basically, he's saying, why are you being like a stubborn ox or a stubborn sheep kicking back and resisting me and what I'm doing? And in that defining moment, Paul makes a complete 180 of the direction of his life. If you know the story, he goes basically in that one moment from being one of the biggest persecutors of Christ to one of the biggest proclaimers of Christ. What Christ did to Paul is what Ecclesiastes is meant to do to us as well. It's meant to goad us into action towards God, towards God to move in the direction that he is going. Just like it's a call to move, just like it's a call to action, it's also a call to attachment. It's a call to attachment. We read, uh, we read this, that the collected sayings are like firmly embedded nails, firmly embedded nails. We should not only be goaded by the wisdom of Ecclesiastes, but we should also be like the goad itself with a firmly attached nail in it. The wise words of Ecclesiastes should be driven into our minds, pounded deep into our hearts, hammered and nailed into our souls so that we don't forget, so that we don't forget the wise words of it, so that when life seems to be slipping through our fingers like smoke, we can stay attached to the truth of Ecclesiastes and the truth to the scriptures in general, to the truth to the word of God. You know, in our, in our house, uh, our home, it's about 15 years old, and so there's little things that we're starting to notice that might need fixed, right, or little things that start to kind of need repaired, and nothing major, but just these little things. And one of the things I've noticed is that uh, in my upstairs hallway, in the ceiling, just, you know, just below the attic, the, 
there are nails kind of starting to appear up in the drywall where the spackling's kind of crumbled. And, you know, and gravity, 15 years of gravity is making them kind of come down a little bit. 15 years of the attic getting really hot in the summers and really cold and contracting and expanding, contracting and expanding. These nails are just starting to come down just a little bit. And so I need to go around and with the hammer, I just need to tap them back in and, you know, fix the spackling. And I'll probably have to do it again, you know, in a few years and again in a few years. And that's just going to be probably part of it. I don't know. There's some builders and handy people in here. Maybe you've got better ideas than that, but that's, that's my plan. And, 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 that, and the truth is, we have, that's what the word of God needs to be like to us. We need to keep hammering it into our lives. We need to keep pounding it into our hearts. We never get to a point where we don't need to pay attention to the scriptures anymore, where we, we have it all permanently figured out. We have to keep hammering it when it gets loose, when the things of this world, you know, and our life go up and down and the temperature changes and gravity pulls us down, like we have to go back to the word and just keep tapping it, tapping it, tapping it in, solidifying it into our hearts. That, and we need to take the wisdom of God day after day and keep exposing ourselves to it so that it stays attached. And notice I said the wisdom of God and not the wisdom of the teacher of Ecclesiastes. The wisdom of God. Verse 11 said, the words of of the wise are like goads, they're collected sayings like firmly embedded nails given by one shepherd. Here, the narrator doesn't say the wisdom is given by the teacher. He says given by one shepherd. Now it's possible that the narrator is referring to the teacher here and just kind of going, keeping going with the analogy, but nowhere else in the whole book is he referred to as the shepherd. And most scholars don't believe that he's talking about the teacher here. Most scholars believe that he's now transitioning and is talking about God, that God is the shepherd, that all the words that the teacher has written are actually the inspired infallible word of God to his people. And what is, what is God trying to goad us to do? What is he saying that we should do? Verse 13, now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Here it is. Here's where the buck stops. This is the end of it all. What is it? Two things, fear God and keep his commandments. And for this is the duty of all mankind, for God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it's good or evil. That last line, is, it's very heavy. It's a, it's a very blunt way to end it. Uh, judgment is coming. And in the end, God will judge every hidden thing, good and bad, every secret sin, and every anonymous kindness. And that should prod us. That should goad us. That should poke us. That should make us alert. Not, not to respond later, but to respond now. To respond now to that. And how do we respond? Again, we fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the duty of man, all mankind. These two things sum up the entire conclusion of Ecclesiastes. The entire conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. But fear God, what, to fear God, what does that mean? That does not mean that we take a posture in our heart where we're scared of him, where we cower in a ball on the floor in the, or in the corner, but rather that we go to our knees before him, that we raise our hands and worship to him, that we respect him. It means to honor him. It means to be in awe of him. 
It means to yield to him, to surrender to him, to put our trust in him, to put our faith and our hope in him, to go to him for guidance and wisdom, not our own abilities, but his abilities. That's what to fear God means. It means I'm gonna choose to trust you, God, more than I trust myself, my own thoughts, my own opinions about life, because every time I try to grab it, it just slips through my fingers. It's just heaven. It's just gone before I know it. Every time I try to control it or hold on to it, I can't seem to do it, but you can. You can hold on to it. And when we fear God, when we trust him and we put our faith in him, it has a cause and effect relationship to lead us, to help us keep his commandments, to do the second part, to be obedient to him, to follow his proddings and nudges. And that obedience, in turn, proves the authenticity of our faith and worship in him. It's, it's like a cause and effect relationship cycle that just keeps going. It just, you know, the, if, if what is true about if the, what the teacher of Ecclesiastes has taught us in his life experiment is true, that all of, all of life is, is meaningless and vanity and hevel without God, then the only correct conclusion that we can draw from this is to run to God. It's to go to him, to fear him, to worship him, and to be obedient to him and his commandments, to stay on the path that he wants us to be on. But we are by nature stubborn, stubborn oxen. We are stubborn sheep, right? When, when it comes to God's commandments and his proddings and pokings, oftentimes we do kick against him or resist against him. We live in a culture that loves the idea of a kind God, a God that's gracious and merciful and loving, and he is, thank goodness, he is, and those things are true, right? But, but is it kindness and, and gracious and merciful and loving to let us walk in a direction that's not good for us or that's dangerous for us? I don't think that's very kind. Or is it, 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 that, or is it kindness or gracious or loving to let us keep going down a path of just hevel, of just going after things of this world that he knows won't, won't last, right? Is it kind, gracious, merciful, loving to let us stay stuck and stubborn? Or does he want us to grow? Does he want us to grow? You know, when was the last time, let me ask you this, when was the last time the scriptures, the Bible, goaded you? When was the last time, you know, it challenged you uh, to respond in obedience, even if you didn't really want to. You know, honestly, that should happen fairly often. That should happen fairly frequently. And if it's not, that, there probably are one or two reasons why it might not be. One, maybe you're not going to the Bible as often as you should. Maybe God is inviting you to just, you can't be goaded if you're never around the word of God. Right? You can't be goaded by the scriptures if you're not reading enough. That could be it, or maybe you do, but you've just grown callous to it. Maybe your hide is a little tough back there to the pokings and proddings of God. So often we can get so comfortable with the Bible, so comfortable with it, we, we think this is so good, that I need to tell this to this friend and that family member and that, and God says, yeah, that's great, but I wanna tell it to you too. You need to hear this too. He wants to soften soften our hearts to receive it well, to be teachable in it. A couple days ago, 
I was kind of wrestling with this decision. It, was, it didn't seem like a big decision, it was just a little decision. And my, the decision I was trying to make is, I really wanted to see something happen in my life, and I was trying to decide if I should kind of like make it happen. You know, like kind of manipulate things a little bit so what I got, or what I wanted to happen would happen. Have you ever had that, has that happened to you ever? I'm sure it happens to many of you a lot, right? There's things in our life we're wondering, well, should I kind of push this along? And I, that day I was listening to the Bible uh, on audio, and, it, and I was listening to, it was a story in the Old Testament, and this character in the Old Testament was supposed to wait for God, and he didn't. He didn't wait for God. It didn't turn out very good for him. And right in that moment, it was like, oh, you're talking about me right now. God, you're, you're challenging me right now. Am I going to wait for you, or am I going to kind of make this happen on my own? And I'll be honest, you know, I went from 38-year-old Andrew to two-year-old Andrew in my mind. I had a little temper tantrum for like five seconds. I, no, no, I want it now, God. I want it my way, right? It's so funny. I can be really good at doing that on the outside. I can stay 38-year-old Andrew, but on the inside, I can become two-year-old Andrew pretty quick. And God was so kind and so gracious and so merciful and so loving to just gently prod me. To say, but Andrew, will you wait for me? Will you wait for me? And I said, all right. You know, but when I said all right, when I made the decision to be obedient to him, it was like immediate. Immediate was like, oh, no, I actually want to do this. I actually want to be obedient to you. That's right. You know what's good for me. You have this all figured out. I want, I actually want to, to, to be obedient to your prodding and your poking because I know it's gonna guide me in the path that you want me to go. And sometimes we have to wait for God like a long time to get an answer, right? He says, wait, and we wait for years. But in this instance, literally two hours later, what I wanted to happen happened. Two hours later, I didn't, I didn't do anything. I didn't make it happen. He made it happen. And I, and I just realized like he's trying to teach me, even in the little ways, to just be obedient. And the more, I'm more, the more I am obedient, the quicker I am to want to be obedient to him because I see his faithfulness. I see I can trust him. It makes me wanna worship him and fear him more. And that cycle just keeps going. The more we fear him and worship him, the more we wanna be obedient to him, which makes us wanna fear him and worship him more. And it just keeps going. And, and, and just because I'm a pastor doesn't mean that's easy though. You know, <laughs> there are times where I still wanna go and become two-year-old defiant Andrew, right? But the more and more I grow in my faith, the more and more day by day I walk that out with him, the more and more I see that uh, he's so faithful and, and, and the more I'm excited to be quickly obedient to him, even if it's a hard thing, even if it's an uncomfortable thing or a difficult thing, because I know it's, it's good and it's the path he wants me to be on. And this is the end of the matter. This is the conclusion of the great experiment of Ecclesiastes. You know, verse 13 again, now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments for this is the duty of all mankind. This phrase, this is the duty of all mankind is literally in, in actuality, it's the phrase, this is the whole of man. This is the whole of man. He's saying, this is what it means to be human. This is what it means to do this human thing well. 
It's to fear and keep. Fear and keep. Fear God, worship God, and to keep and obey his commandments. That's what it all comes down to. If the worship team wants to start to make their way back up here, worship team, worship team. I'm looking at you. (laughs) Get off your phone. Get off your phone. No, I'm just kidding. No. The problem is, I'll end with this. I'll wrap this up here. But the problem is is this idea of, of yielding our whole self to him. We don't always do that very well. I think naturally as human beings, we don't always surrender and yield our whole self to God. Instead, we tend to give him parts of our lives. We tend to compartmentalize our lives in different ways and say, God, you can have this part. I feel good giving you this part, but I don't wanna give you these other parts. We tend to not want to give everything of ourselves, our whole self to him. This is what I, what I call the, the, the difference between a, a fruit salad Christian and a fruit smoothie Christian. Okay, and I've used this analogy before, but it seems like it fits here, so I'm gonna use it again. Here's the idea. So a fruit salad Christian is you got all these different parts of your life, right? You have, you have all these different fruits mixed in the fruit salad, right? You got raspberries, and that might be like your work life, right? You got strawberries, and that might be like your friend life, and you got blackberries, and that might be your sex life, and you got all these different things, and you got bananas, and that might be your spiritual life with God. Like, God, you can get the bananas, right? We got all these different things, and, and yet we, they're compartmentalized. You can pick one out and eat it, right? That raspberry tastes like a raspberry. That has certain rules or things that I can control, right? And then I can take a blackberry and eat that, and, every, and they can, I can taste each, each of their unique flavors, and they're distinct, but here's the difference between a fruit salad Christian and a fruit smoothie Christian. See, a fruit smoothie Christian is where Jesus comes in and you invite him in to blend it all together. And it's all still in there, right? It's all still in there, but every sip you take, what do you taste? You taste banana, right? Have you ever noticed that about banana and smoothies? Like, it doesn't matter what else is in there, you can taste banana. Right? You might not be able to tell exactly, oh, was that, was that a raspberry or a blackberry or strawberry anymore, right? But banana is in every little sip, right? And now, and what, that, what I mean by that is now, G- Jesus has come in and blended on, and he, you can taste him in everything. He has all of you, your whole self. And now, now worshiping God and obeying his commands isn't just for Sundays. It isn't just for small group. It impacts every part of your life, all of your life, your whole of yourself your whole humanity, right? Now the whole experiment to test life itself that the teacher has done in Ecclesiastes, the stuff of this world, you know, that we are tempted to wander off and try to grab hold of. Now all of a sudden it's not quite as tempting anymore, right? Now God can and will lovingly, kindly, mercifully nudge and goad and prod us through the hevel of life when we fear him, and when we keep his commands. That is the end of it all. That is the conclusion of the whole experiment. Amen? Amen. Well, thanks so much for joining us today. I hope that what you heard has encouraged you in your walk with Jesus. For more information and to contact us, go to vcdc.org. We'll bless you. Have a wonderful week.